We'd love for them to be a part of what we have going on with our Vine Kids time. If you have a fifth or sixth, seventh grader, they're going right out this back door with Mr. Jeff. He's over there, and he would love to be a part of that. We'd love for your kids to be a part of what we have going on. Awesome. So uh, if you're here for the first time, once again, I want to tell you how grateful we are. We are honored that you are here with us this morning. Um, It is our privilege to have you in worship with us. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. Again, we'd love to know that you were here. We'd love to share information with you, tell a bit more about how you can get involved and those kind of things. If you fill out the bottom of that card, let us know that you were here. Um, That would be great. We are actually in this sort of journey to the book of John. I love to teach this way. I love to work through scripture. I love to look at all these verses in context and let these things play out. It's what I really love to do. My whole goal as a preacher is to introduce you to a love affair with God's word. Um, It's to do nothing more than that. I'm not looking to entertain you and have you come back and do all those kind of things. I just want you to fall in love with the word of God. And so I love to teach this way. We've gone through lots of books. Well, we have started the journey of John, John's gospel, and we are into week 11. And, um, you know, John's gospel is a little different than some of the other journeys we've been on through scripture because John has one singular purpose. His entire gospel is not written around geography or stories or people or characters. It's written around one singular figure, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. John's sole desire is that you would see Jesus as divine, as God's son, as redeemer. And so his entire gospel is written that we might know the incarnation, God in the flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. And that is his goal, which makes my goal as a preacher incredibly easy because I just want you to see Jesus. And so everything that we do as we work through the gospel of John is going to be pointing us back to the person, the resurrection, uh, God in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, right? So we took a break for Easter, but uh, we are picking back up into week 11. And we are, I finished a three-week look at Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Um, I won't recap that, uh, only except to tell you that we began a section with Nicodemus where Jesus is going to be encountering people. And John is going to record Jesus' encounters with people, broken people, messed up people, flawed people. They're going to point to his deity. And we're going to see that unfold over the next a few weeks and probably even month as we look at these different encounters. And this morning, John the Baptist is going to surface again. We talk quite a bit about him. He is going to surface again in an argument that develops among his disciples about who does religious things the best, right? And so sadly, it's an argument and a uh, problem that we have right here in our Western 21st century church as well. And John's going to address it by pointing to the fact that Jesus changes everything, including the arguments that we have. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 22. We have moved past Nicodemus, and we are going to bump into John the Baptist again before we meet some of these critical figures over the next few chapters, the woman at the well, and some of these people and stories that we know so well in the gospel. We're going to revisit John and his disciples and see where that gets us. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 3, verse 22. And uh, before we open that up and explore it, let's take a moment and let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. It is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. That is what you tell us. You tell us that your word is alive. It is the very breath of God. And uh, Lord, we don't take that lightly. Uh, we take that opportunity to encounter your word very seriously. And so Lord, we pray that you would teach our hearts this morning, that you would instruct us, that our encounter with your word would be an encounter with you. 
So take a moment right where you sit and just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Whatever that means, however you need to say that, whatever that uh, sort of outcry is, just ask the Lord to, to teach you. Each week we take a moment and we pray for somebody around us. We want this morning to not be just about you. So take a moment and pray for somebody else. Maybe it's your husband or your wife or, or maybe it's a friend or maybe you're here for the first time and you don't know any of these people and that's great. Just, just do it. Just try it. Pray for someone else. Even if you don't know their name, just pray that God would move in them this morning. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. You are Redeemer, you are Savior, you are King of Kings, and Lord, you are the instructor of our hearts. And so we ask that you would teach us through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we spent three weeks looking at Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, right? We explored that from top to bottom in, in a bunch of different ways. And, and Jesus um, has this incredible sort of word for him that translates in a word for us about what we expect and what we long for, and we talked about that quite in depth. And, and John's gospel is going to move forward. Jesus is going to move out of the city and he's going to move into the Judean countryside. And he's not going to have a direct encounter with John the Baptist, but G, uh, John's knowledge of Jesus and who he is is going to change an argument that we see pop up. So let's look at 322. We'll read it together, and then we'll just kind of break it apart a little bit. After this, meaning after Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went out to the Judean countryside where they spent some time with them and he baptized or they baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Enon and Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over a matter of ceremonial washing. <clears throat> they came to John and said, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. It is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above uh, is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks of one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies on what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who accepted it is certified, is certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God for God and gives a spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So here is exactly what's unfolding, kind of capturing all those words together. Jesus has left the cities out of the Judean countryside. He has gone with his disciples. Um, they're in the same little region. He's gone with his disciples, and Jesus and his disciples are baptizing, is what John, John the Gospel writer, remember, different guy than John the Baptist, what John the Gospel writer is telling us is that Jesus is out in the countryside, and he and his disciples are baptizing. Now, we don't know much about this bapti baptism, 
but it's not the baptism that you and I celebrate. Remember, the one that we celebrate in the church when someone surrenders their life to Jesus Christ for the very first time, uh, that sort of symbolic rebirth when someone's heart goes from dead in sin to alive in Christ and they come up out of the water, that baptism is not what John was doing. Remember, John was baptizing in confession and repentance for the coming kingdom of God, preparing your heart uh, in repentance that the Messiah was coming. Well, it's safe to assume that Jesus' baptism that they were doing with these disciples, and we actually learn in 4.2 in just a few verses that Jesus himself was actually not baptizing, but his disciples were, was the same baptism that John was doing, which was confession and repentance, preparing our hearts for the coming of the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus and his disciples are out in the wilderness, and they've got people coming to them, and they're doing that. And John and his disciples are on the other side, but somewhere close, and there are a couple of cities around there, and they're out in this region, they're doing that. And life is sort of happening that way. In fact, our text tells us that people were coming, um, were constantly coming to be baptized by John and his disciples. So an argument breaks out. Now what's happened is, as, as John was gaining some notoriety, lots and lots of people were coming out to engage him, to listen to him, and to be baptized. In fact, a few chapters earlier, we see that even the Pharisees had come out to engage John talk to him and debate him. They were gaining notoriety. They were gaining a lot of momentum. This little movement was turning into something somewhat large, right? And people were coming out to be baptized, and John's disciples found themselves in an argument. John, our text in the NIV calls it with a certain Jew. Some manuscripts actually have it plural, with certain Jews. doesn't really matter. The point is that they get in this, <clears throat> excuse me, they get in this argument. And they're arguing about ceremonial cleanliness and washing. Now, the Jews were very concerned with making sure that they did these religious activities correctly. Now, ceremonial washing was actually a, it was a process by which you did some cleaning of your hands and feet after your daily activities in order to be clean. It wasn't actually like you're scrubbing your hands to get rid of germs. It was ceremonial in nature. It was cleansing yourself from daily activities. A few weeks ago, you may remember that Jesus turned water into wine. You remember that whole uh, message we shared in those, those stone jars that were filled with water? Were actually filled with water for ceremonial washing for the wedding. People would come by, they would dump it on their feet and hands, and there was a process they went through <clears throat> to become ceremonially clean, right? Not necessarily just physically clean, but ceremonially clean. Well, the Jews and John the Baptist's kind of got, disciples got in this argument over that process, and doing that correctly because somehow it's probably tied to baptism and is this what you're doing and John's disciples are saying no or, or whatever. But they're, they're in this argument over that process of basically being religiously right. Who's doing it correctly? When that argument, somehow Jesus' name comes up, right? And the disciples learn that Jesus and his disciples are actually out in the Judean countryside and they too are baptizing people and people are going to them. Well, John's disciples, well, they get, get kind of jealous and frustrated, which is really interesting, right? But they go to John, right? And they go and they say, Rabbi, which is a term of, of respect, right? Rabbi, teacher, the man who was with you on the other side, right? Just a few <clears throat> weeks or months earlier, you remember that guy you were telling us about, right? That man that you testified about, that you told us all these things about? Well, well he is baptizing and everyone is going to him right? Which is awesome because we also read in verse 23 and 24 that people, plenty of people were constantly coming to be baptized at John's disciples, but they're saying, John, 
everyone's going to see Jesus, and he's baptizing too. And you can almost feel the disgruntled nature in their voices, right? So John replies. And John replies by basically saying, look, I have told you that I am not the Messiah, right? That's not me. And he talks in this sort of metaphor about brides and bridegrooms and and best men and all this, basically saying that I am not the bridegroom. God is the bridegroom. The people of God, right, as we're going to learn, are his bride. And he's, he's kind of referencing that Jesus is going to become the head of the church. The church is a bride of Christ. And, and John equates himself as the friend of the bridegroom. And he says, my job is that when I hear the bridegroom's voice as he comes into his wedding, I get excited. Like I find incredible joy not being the guy, but being the guy that gets to be by the guy that gets the bride, right? And he's like, this is my, my job. And he goes on to talk about how Jesus is from above and he knows all things and all things belong to him, but John is just from the earth and I just know earthly things. And he actually says this, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in depth in a moment. He must become greater. I must become less. Some translations, he must increase. I must decrease. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus as the way, salvation. And he gets to the end and he says, listen, Salvation comes through Christ, through Jesus, that if you believe in him, you have eternal life. And if you don't, you will never know life because God's wrath is fully on you. And there's so much in these verses, um, so much that we've talked about, about the deity of Christ and who he is. But, but I don't want to get to all that this morning because I want to pay attention to exactly what's in front of us. Because what's in front of us is really fascinating. And it's it's what we're dealing with today, which is, of course, incredibly tragic, that we are still dealing with these same things that are popping their heads up in religious circles and even in our own lives. And the first thing that we see in all that is the disgruntled nature of John's disciples. And you can see it right in their voices. You know, everyone is going to Jesus, which of course is so dramatic, right? Because they've got tons of people there that they're baptizing. But if you ever had a teenager, you know what that means. Man, everyone hates me. Oh, really? Everyone hates you. Every human that draws breath hates you. I failed every test. Every test. You failed every test you've ever taken. Really? Every single one, right? I mean, you can see that in them. They're like, everyone is going there and not here. And you put yourself in their shoes for a minute, right? They had given their lives to follow John the Baptist. And when all this started, John was weird, right? I mean, they thought he was weird. He was this guy out in the desert who was eating locusts and wearing furs, right? And these guys had given their life to go and follow him. And there were rumors about them and who they were and what they were doing. And they had been sort of the the subject of probably a lot of religious jokes and all those kind of things. But they had stood by him and they had listened and they had watched as one person came out and got baptized. And then two, and they had seen people repenting. And they had seen this this movement grow. And then all of a sudden, the Pharisees were paying attention to them. And they're out there. And now hundreds of people are lined up. In fact, we realize and learn that the reason that John's disciples go out to the place where they are is because it was a place where there was plenty of water. There were so many people getting baptized that they had to find a place where there was enough water, right? They had watched this thing that they were a part of get legs, right? Go from nothing to something immediately. And they're arguing with these Jewish leaders probably about religious rights and and all those things. And then they hear the rumor that Jesus, 
this guy that John had, had talked about on the other side was actually doing the same thing that they were. And he wasn't that far away. And all these people were going to him instead of to John, who they had given their life to, right? You can almost feel the sort of jealous nature that they come back to John with, like teacher, rabbi, right? They call him rabbi, rabbi. That guy, the one you told us about, he's taking all your people, all your business, all of our business, all of our stuff. He, he, he's, he, they're all going out there to him. And it sounds so ridiculous to us sitting here, right? I mean, that's Jesus and his disciples. Of course, go see Jesus. If you had the choice to see Jesus or John, I mean, choose Jesus to us. But if you really think about it, I mean, it's the same stinking thing that we do in our culture today, right? We have such disgruntled hearts, right? We just have such disgruntled hearts. They have this jealous streak that runs through us, and none of us will admit it, right? But it's true. We have this jealous streak that runs in us personally. We look around at people, and maybe not all the time, of course, but it crops its head at all the wrong times. We look around at people, and we think, man, if I just, if I just had that or this, or why do they get that all the time, or, or, or how come they get to do this? And I continue to keep struggling with this. If I just had this thing, right, this whatever, that family, my kids, those whatever, we live with this sort of disgruntled, jealous streak that runs through the middle of our soul that just wants what other people have. And it doesn't have to even be material. Sometimes we look at other people's marriages, other people's lives, the way their kids are, right? And of course, social media fuels both sides of this bankrupt lie, but... It fuels it. And we look out there and we think, how come they, right? And it's kind of what John's disciples are doing. They're kind of going, how come? I mean, we've been out here, and all those people are going over to Jesus. Everyone is going over there. And it happens in our Christian circles as well, our Christian culture, right? I mean, we look at it all the time. A church springs up and it gets great favor, great growth, and <clears throat> you've been laboring for a long time, and, and they go from zero to a hundred and zero to a thousand like that. We look at them and go, well, I don't, I wish, or we, or whatever, or they're doing it wrong, and we become this, this streak in us that begins to look at those other communities and churches and go, psh, so big, they've sold out, or whatever, right? I mean, most of you are here because you were so unhappy with where you were. Right? You just brought your garbage here. People are there, it's too big, it's too small, it's too loud, too quiet, whatever. Because that's what we do. And eventually you'll become disgruntled here, right? And you'll go over there and you'll be like, ah, oh, church is okay, but you know, God was whatever, and da da da. That's what we do. And it's a little tongue in cheek, but there's a lot of truth in that. We're really judgmental of those other communities, right? I mean, I've heard it a thousand times because I ask you why you come and you tell me, well, I don't want to say anything bad about so-and-so, but man, they're terrible, right? As <laughs> my son does, no offense, but you know, you're kind of fat, dad. And I'm like, that's offensive. <laughs> I said no offense. That doesn't mean anything, right? But we have that streak in us, right? We just have it and, and we see it. And they are so in that moment. And you almost can't blame them. I mean, look. 
They didn't understand who Jesus was. It was funny because they're not even listening to the message John's proclaiming, right? He's saying, this is the Messiah. He is the one. Now, a couple of them get it. Andrew, we know, follows Jesus. But for the most part, they're just like, what are we laboring for if we're not going to see the fruit of any of this? And so they're disgruntled and they're kind of angry. And, and we have a lot of those same traits. We don't say it out loud. But man, we're, we're really disgruntled in our own hearts. And truth is, what we're really just saying to God is, is Lord, what you've given me is not enough for me. It's just not. I deserve more. Even in his Christian culture, like we, we just deserve more, right? I mean, what a lie that is. What a garbage that is to fill our hearts with. Like, we should have something else. God, what you've blessed me with and my own life is not enough for me. Jesus, you are not enough for me. That's what that says at this root source, right? Well, they go to John, right? And so how does John reply? Which is really fascinating because John's reply is, is really great because he seems so unthreatened, unnerved, unwaved, unfazed. And he's almost even a little kind of perturbed that they're even coming to him. But his response is incredible. And he really has two ways he kind of responds or two things he kind of says. One, he talks about himself, right? And he basically says, look, I am joyfully content with who I am and what my role is. And he gives that whole kind of speech about the bridegroom. And, and, but what he's saying is, look, I am very happy not being the bridegroom. Like, I don't want to be Jesus. I don't want that power. I don't want to be that person. I am content with the role that I've been given, which is to stand out here and be a bit of a mockery, but point to the one who will save all. And I am content there. And even goes on to say, I have found joy there, right? My role is that when I hear the bridegroom's voice, I am full of joy. That joy is mine and it is now complete. In other words, I find joy and complete joy when people see Jesus coming. I don't care what they say about me. I don't care if they know me. I don't care what they say. My joy is that when the bridegroom walks in and people freak out. Like, I love that. John is saying, my life is joyfully content. Now, when you hear me say the word content, here's what most of us automatically think. I have got to settle. I have to relegate my life to whatever hand I've been given. So we think contentment means that I'm just going to have to have this, whatever it is, forever. And the plight of my Christian life is to just find settlement and peace and whatever with whatever this thing is. Well, nobody wants that because our definitions are broken. Contentment is actually living in a place where you say, Jesus, you are enough for me. Like I am joyfully content in my role, meaning I am joyfully not longing for something other than you. That's what joyfully content means. It means I am happy not longing for something else that's not you. I'm not settling. We don't settle for a life that's obedient to Christ. It is a joy, right? And that's what John says. Why are you all worked up? I told you I'm not him. Like, I am happy with my role. And he says, look, I am joyfully content. And then he goes on to say something else that's really powerful. He says, I'm actually working to become smaller. 
In John's most famous statement that John the Baptist will ever make, John 3.30, he says, I must become, right? He must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must decrease. John says, my life's ambition is to become smaller, to become less. I mean, if you really think about how countercultural that is, it is almost staggering. Everything we do in, a cult, in our culture for ourselves is that we might increase, that we might climb the ladder, that we might have more respect, more power, more recognition, more fame, more notoriety, more whatever, more money, more resources, more things. We go from smaller house to bigger house to bigger house to bigger house to bigger house. We are always on the increase. That is our movement as people. It is our movement it is our movement is Christianity. We are always about becoming more, knowing more, growing more, being more, right? John is saying we are called with our lives to work, to become smaller. And it is at the opposite of everything that wants to happen inside of you. John's saying, I want to become less significant. Man, I'll tell you what. It is the opposite of everything that we are told, and especially everything we are told in our Christian vocational circles. Christian vocational circles always work towards the increase. And we're not helping any as followers of Christ, right? Because we have celebritized pastors and worship leaders and bloggers and writers and whatnot. I hear it all the time. Where do you go to church? Oh, I go to so-and-so's church as if it belongs to him. You are the church. Your definition's broken. I go to so-and-so's church, right? Our goal is multi-campuses, more things, more stuff, more size, more whatever. And I'm not dogging it. I'm just saying it's the way we are. And it inflates our power and our own need for ourselves. And we think the church won't work without us. So I'm going to have to be on every screen that we've got. Because no one will come if I'm not preaching. That's the lie of increase. They need more of me. It's just unbelievable. But in your life, you are the same way, right? At work. You're not trying to work yourself smaller. You have to be seen. You have to be at your name out there and be known. And we work up and our levels become of more importance and more importance. And it feeds our broken ego. And everything in this world will point us to increase. And John says, my whole goal in life is to work to become less significant. And I find it incredibly powerful. Look, the Christian church machine, I mean, it just, the subculture just fuels this, right? I mean, think about it, right? I've seen it happen. You've seen it happen. We've seen the church count Easter numbers. They count by fives, right? Five, 10, 15,000. We had 1,000. Well, it was your social media posts. 800 baptisms on Easter Sunday. Come to find out, half of those people have already been baptized. You're just baptizing them as they come into your church but we count them and we throw them out there and we say those things because we're so desperate to make ourselves more relevant for culture that we think we need to use the same metrics that corporate culture uses, right? Numbers, campus, sizes, things. And the more of that means we're more relevant and we feed that machine like crazy. And when those things don't measure up, we manufacture them. I've seen the machine work. I've seen Christian pastors as authors have the church buy thousands of copies of their book and give them out for free and then report those numbers as sales to bump up on the New York Times bestseller list. I've seen churches erect a shrine to their pastors that write books, selling them in the lobby with giant cardboard cutouts. 
It happens. Because people tell you, you need to be more, to be relevant, to be whatever. Think about it this way. Take it out of that context for a minute. Think about John's disciples. Think about if you had a neighbor for 13 years, maybe. You got to know your neighbor. You spent time with him. You invited him to your house. Your whole goal in life with that neighbor was to share Jesus with him. All you wanted to do was know Christ. You invite them to church, and they just turn you down. They would never go, and none of that would ever happen. You tried those conversations, but you just continue to love them, and that was great. But your whole goal for all those years was that they might know Jesus. And you worked, and you worked, and you worked on it, and they just never were open to it. And then someday, some guy comes along, or some family comes along, and they just meet him for the first time, and they invite them to church, and that person goes with them. And they show up at church, and that Sunday, wherever they go, they preach some message, and, and that person accepts Christ, and they walk down the aisle, and they give their life to Christ, and they call you on the way home, and they're going, you're not going to believe what happened. So-and-so came, and they invited me to church, and I came and heard, and they told me all about Jesus, and I gave my life to Christ, and next Sunday, I'm sharing my testimony up on stage, and they get up on stage, and they tell everybody how that person had brought them to church and shared Christ with them and led them to Jesus. What do you feel, Right? you excited? Or are you like, for 13 years, I tried to tell you that. <laughs> hey, just a little, just a tiny bit, throw a little bit my way, right? Hey, all those meals, all those times, all that stuff, somebody swoops in, steals my credit. <laughs> Jesus knows, right? Jesus, you know that was all me. Just want to make sure you know. I mean, the truth is, is that we're driven by that thing that says, I want that for me. And it's so sad and ridiculous, but it's so deeply true. And I was so taken aback by this, right? As I'm reading all this and studying all this, and I've read this verse a hundred thousand times. But I'm so taken aback by it because what if John's, well, John's entire ministry life is this. I want to be, and I am, happy with my place in life, right? Happy with my place in life, no matter what it is, because I have Jesus. And my entire life and ministry goal is to work to become insignificant. What if that was our heartbeat, right? To say, as a church and as, as people, like our entire goal was, like I'm really joyful where I am because I know that Jesus is enough for me. And I'm not saying I'm relegated to these problems. And I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful for my role. I don't need it to be more. I don't need to be seen. I don't need to be at the top of the ladder. I need to be whatever. Like, I just, I love my life. And my whole goal is that maybe no one ever sees me, right? That I work to just become smaller. And not in that artificial manufactured way, but in the way that John's saying, Jesus must become greater. I must become less. Right? The opposite of everything that we've ever been told, which is get credit, take credit, do whatever it takes. They need more of you. The truth is, they don't need more of you. They actually need less of you. They need less of me. And they need a whole lot more of Jesus. Why? Well, to wrap everything up, John says this is why. Look at verse 35, 36. Because whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So why do they need more of Jesus? Because without Jesus, we are due God's wrath. Our sinful lives have led us to death and destruction, and without Jesus, we are the recipient of God's full 
wrath. That's why they need less of you and more of Jesus. That's why they need less of me pointing to myself and how much you need to come and hear me and see me and support the ministry machine and more of Jesus. Because without Jesus, we are subject to death. They can have as much of me as they want. And they can have a full to the top of me. They can read my books and my blogs and my teaching and they can wear my shirts and they can be full to the brim of me and die. But if they have Jesus, they live. They live. That's what John's saying. They can have all of us they want and they die. So let's give them less of us and more of Jesus, which is the entire heartbeat of my life and what I hope this church is about. Let's give people less of us and more of Jesus, right? Less of, you need this thing here, and more of, look, we just want you to know Jesus. If you come here or not, I could give a flying rip, but I want you to know Jesus. Why? Because with Jesus is life. It's the gospel. It's the euangelion. It's the good news that he is hope to the hopeless, that he is freedom to the oppressed, that the bondage of the sin in your life and the hopelessness that you feel is only remedied by Christ. And without Jesus, we are subject to God's wrath. And it is exactly what Easter is about that we talked about last week. Christ's death and resurrection frees us. We believe in our heart, frees us from the due penalty of God's wrath. And we're so infatuated with people seeing shrines that we've built to ourselves in our churches instead of the God that gives life behind them. At what point in time does our entire life ministry need to follow that of John the Baptist? I am joyfully content with you. And you must become more. And I must become less. That becomes the entire heartbeat of everything we're called to be. And it is not easy, but it is beautiful. It is beautiful. And so my heartbeat for you and my heartbeat for me and this entire church is that we would, we would give them less of us always and more of Jesus. And maybe for you right now, you're struggling with the first end of that. Man, joyfully content, Trev, is a mess for me. I'm not content. I'm not joyful. I'm kind of bitter at God. I'm bitter at life and bitter at whatever. And I think I should have a little more because they do. You got to rid your heart of that. Quit saying, Jesus, you are not enough for me. And say, Jesus, I need more of you. I must become less and you must become more. I need more of you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the opportunity just to open your word. It's simple truths, God, that are so profound to me. And it's not an indictment on anybody else. I mean, God, we're, we're as much a, to, to blame for this Christian subculture as anybody. I, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm pointing them really at, at, at myself. It just saddens my heart that we have overly competed with each other for believers that already exist to try and outperform each other when all creation just needs is you. They just need a savior. They need you. They need less of me, less of us, more of you. 
And Lord, I think that all stems because in my heart, truthfully, I need more of you. And as long as I am desperate for more of you, then I, I pray that would drive us. But Lord, when, when I don't see my need for more of you, it drives my need for more of me. And that's detrimental to everybody, including myself. God, you are the redeemer. You are savior. You are Jesus. You are the incarnation. You are God in the flesh. You came and died and rose so that we might have life, that we might be victorious over death. We hold that truth in this place, in our hearts, and there is a world out there that is dying without Jesus. And most of us are unfazed. How does that not break our hearts? Lord, stir our hearts to the point of movement. God, move our hearts so that what breaks yours breaks ours. God, you must become greater and we must become less.